0: Welcome to this second episode in the Project Edward 2021 podcast. My name is James Luckhurst and I'm pleased to be joined for this programme by David Davis of the Parliamentary Advisory Council for Transport Safety, PACS for short, Ian Lewin, Managing Director of DTEC International, manufacturers of the widely used drug wipe detection system, and from Finland, Max Fogdell, Head of the Driving Licenses and Examinations Unit at the Transport and Communications Agency, Traficom. Gentlemen, you're all very welcome. We'll be focusing on issues relating to the UK, but I'm delighted that Max should be joining us with his perspective on Finland's use of alcohol interlock devices for repeat drink drive offenders. Some observations and reflections to start. First, relating to drink driving. Deaths in England, Scotland and Wales attributed to drink driving over the legal limit amount to 13% of all road deaths. Research for the landmark North Report of 2010 found that drinking alcohol and driving cars are both cultural norms that have a powerful grip on some people. And next to drug driving, enforcement of the drug driving laws varies dramatically across the country. Currently only cannabis and cocaine can be tested for at the roadside. High costs and delays with blood testing mean that some police forces are rationing what should be a routine roadside test. Forces with better procedures, contracts and training are convicting ten times more drug drivers than others when controlling for population size. So we'll stay on drug driving as we meet Ian Lewin from DTEC, the firm that supplies the drug wipe test kit and, of course, a supporter of Project Edward this year. Ian, talk through a typical police drug stop that leads to a positive test.
1: Uh, yes, we're, we're talking about the unpublicised demon of drug drive. And recent estimates put a figure at 200 per year deaths. And this was considered a very conservative figure. So as far as the police officer at the roadside, they will either see poor driving or they'll be attending a road traffic collision. The first thing they think about is alcohol. They, they go in, ask the drivers a simple question, is this your vehicle? You answer yes, they smell your breath. At that point, if they suspect alcohol, they will require you to blow into the breathalyser, the roadside. If this is above a certain value, above the limit, 35, they'll take you to the station where you'll blow into a confirmation device uh, at which failing that, you'll then be charged and you'll be in court in the next couple of days. Now if we go back and they don't smell alcohol or they're not suspecting alcohol, they will then be thinking drugs. So the old Section 4 impaired, is is the driver in their opinion impaired or are they under the new law, uh, Section 5A, above the level? And at this point, if that's what they suspect, they will use a drug wipe and in a few minutes they'll understand whether it's negative or positive at the roadside with two thirds of all tests being done, being positive. At this point, they then arrest the driver. They have to find transport. They take them back to um, one of the few custody stations. They then have to get the um, healthcare professional to extract blood if they're available. And then that blood sample is sent off to the laboratory in which there is a legal limit for that to be analyzed within six months. If it isn't analysed, it's just thrown away. If it is analysed, that could mean they're in court in something like 12 to 18 months. Remember, an alcohol prosecution is done in a matter of a week. Why is it that slow then? And what suggestions are there or what technology exists for speeding it up? The simple answer is there's not enough labs accredited to test the the blood for the traffic police. The more complex and useful answer is no one really believed the team at DTEC on the size of the problem in the first place. 15 years ago, in Germany, where we're also using drug wipe, same population, we had 35,000 drug drivers within the first two to three years of of roadside testing. So we're now six years into Section 5A drug drive over the limit. And the UK is still only capable of processing 12 to 13,000 bloods. That's a fifth of the 60,000 arrests that are happening in this country at the current time. Well, with that sort of potential, wouldn't you expect the labs to be buying into it? Now, some of it's the police force's own purchasing. Their systems require labs that can do everything from DNA to gunshot. Traces. They're not willing to pick out specialist labs that can do this blood analysis. To such an extent, Merseyside, a police force, is building its own lab specific to processing these drug-drive bloods. Let's look at this idea of the, the postcode lottery that we touched on earlier.
0: Some forces, it says, are convicting 10 times more drug drivers than others. So what do these forces have in their favour and how can every force be brought up to the level of of the best?
1: I I wish, and my company's been running um, biannual engagement events uh, to teach good forces, showing the not-so-good forces where the advances can be made. If we look at the positives, the traffic police really do want to remove these dangerous drivers and make our roads safer. Now, if we look at Section 4, the old impaired, that has doubled from the original 800 cases a year in the early 2000s to nearly 2000 now. And that's because the officers are keen, they've got themselves trained, they want to be successful at this. If we look at the new legislation, the Section 5A, drugs over the limit, This has gone from zero in 2014 when the legislation came in beginning of 2015 to an estimated 50 to 60,000 arrests a year. That number of arrests is several fold more than drink drive. So now let's look at the negatives and to put it bluntly half a dozen forces are excellent and we can start with those with maybe Merseyside, Essex, North Wales Another dozen or so are in the good category. The remaining couple of dozen, to be very direct, leave an awful lot to be desired. We need a national standard, and that means not a local police and crime commissioner making their own decision, usually based on their own vote-winning capabilities, on whether they're going to reinforce the roads policing units. We need ring-fenced money and performance levels for these RPUs and this has to come from the Home Office and secondarily the Department for Transport. There is even a legal status for such a national priority. So why hasn't it been done? I have heard that the Home Office, DFT and National Police Chiefs Council have formed a committee and are meeting on this subject but this is dragging its feet. We then need every coroner to test every road traffic collision fatality for drugs, not just what they think are the obvious ones. Following on from that, we need the DFT to collect and publish performance, which should lead to better think campaign spending and drug focused campaigns. Meanwhile, people are dying and many of whom are completely innocent. Ian Lewin from DTEC,
0: thank you very much. We'll come back to you and hopefully have an opportunity to think of some ideas in the round a little later. But for now, let me um, introduce David Davis from PACTS. Um, David, there are around 240 deaths in Great Britain each year involving a driver over the legal drink drive limit. Uh, Is that number declining? If it's not, what needs to be done and who needs to do it?
2: No, the number has not declined over... If effectively, the past decade, which is in stark contrast to the figures over the previous decades, um, to some extent, it re- reflects a lack of progress in in reducing road, road deaths from all causes in the UK. Um, but it is disappointing that, uh, given the increases, the improvements in vehicle safety and other things that we've seen over that era, uh, that there's not been any reduction in drink-drive deaths. if you imagine, if you you might be drunk, you might have a crash, but if you're vehicle is better protected, then you would expect more people to survive, and that hasn't happened. So it it is worrying. um, And you could say it's not even just a sort of standing still, it could be almost a a movement backwards. What needs to be done? uh, There's a lot that can be and should be done there. Uh, In terms of short term measures, we really need to step up the level of enforcement. It has dropped off dramatically over the past decade, um, which, which may indeed account for a lot. It is a good deal of why we haven't made more progress on on reducing road deaths over the last decade, but the number of drink drive breath tests conducted by the police inside the road has dropped off dramatically, and you know this is something which cannot be fully automated, unlike, unlike speeding where where we had small speed cameras and they are detecting speeding offences, drink driving requires physical police officers at the roadside. So we need to set that up because almost definitely enforcement is the is single most effective uh, deterrent and uh, intervention. With that, we need to step up publicity, link to the enforcement and get out you know, that simple message that you should not drink and drive and that there is a good chance you will be caught. You can't do the publicity if there isn't actually enforcement going on. So the two need to go together. On top of that, we would like to see new powers. We would like to see a lower drink drive limit in England and Wales as uh, has been implemented in Scotland and has been legislated for in Northern Ireland. And they will do that when the technology exists. Um, So have it consistent across the UK. And along with that, uh, we would like to see um, what we are calling mandatory breath testing. Uh, So that's basically what other people might call random breath testing. So the police can, 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 can stop a driver for almost or for any reason in order to carry out a breath, breath test. At the moment, they have a quite wide-ranging powers, but um, we, we think, uh, well, there is evidence that if people believe it is random or and the law is random, then that is in itself a deterrent. So we're not calling for large numbers of drivers to be stopped, but but that is part of the um, impression of deterrence. It's important. Now that would only work, frankly, if we had additional police officers. And that's not so That's not so unlikely. There's, uh, our Prime Minister has said an additional 20,000 police. There is a joint policing review going on, as, as Ian alluded to, between the Home Office and the Department of Transport. And, and we are quite hopeful that there will be uh, more police. And then if I can just look at it in, in, in some, some separate, um, longer, slightly longer-term things, in terms of law, um, there is no additional offence for committing drink and drug driving offences. And... So one of the reasons we, we're calling for a lower drink drive limit is that a combination of drink and drugs, even at lower levels of alcohol, uh, is, is considerably more dangerous. And partly in response to what Ian was saying about enforcing drug drive legislation, there's not much incentive for a police force to prosecute for both offenses. Uh, it's easier for them to prosecute for drink. So in a sense, why bother to do drugs as well? So we are, we are missing out on the drug side or at least the information on the drug side. And then I think there's another aspect to it, which, which which is um, to what extent it's simply almost willful offending and to what extent these are mental health and um, alcohol dependency issues.
0: Can we try to understand the repeat offender? What's a sort of typical picture of a repeat or recidivist re-offender?
2: Well, I think, unfortunately, the short answer is we don't know because although we have a lot of inf- information about drink driving, and more, more than on drugs, there's still quite a lot we don't know. We don't, we don't know what percentage of drivers out there are drinking with excess alcohol in their system. All we know is how many have been caught. Um, and equally, we don't have a, a numerical breakdown of the, of, the, of the causes. I mean, the, the typical image well, in terms of, um, uh, of death and serious injury, it is the young male who is most likely to be involved um, over the legal limit in a drink drive casualty uh, collision. Um, but it is a much broader problem. Uh, in fact, it's, it's one of the interesting problems where actually higher-income groups are more likely to offend than lower-income groups, which is an unusual crime. Um, so Pax, we did, we did this research with the University of, uh, of Stirling and Dundee, and um, what we found was there is absolutely an issue with people who've got mental health problems and alcohol dependency problems, which alcohol problems, if you like, um, they can be quite high functioning alcoholics. Uh, they can drive. Um, that's not to say they can drive safely. And for some of those people, many of those people, uh, alcohol is part of their life and sometimes they happen to get in a car. Whereas, you know, perhaps a more typical, what we would think of the typical drink driver offender is someone who drives and, and then sometimes has a drink, or to, drink too many. And, and so there's quite a broad range of um, of people there and issues, and obviously with the mental health and alcohol dependency um, uh, offenders, they need a separate type of treatment and help. Um, simply, uh, you know, uh, we were quite shocked to find that one in six um, offences is, is caused by a re-offender, someone who has previously been prosecuted for drinking, drink or drug driving. Um, which is a very high level of reoffending and does show you know that people either think they can get away with it again or they just uh, can't resist driving.
0: David Davis, thank you. We'll we'll come back to you and, and talk further. But let's now head over to Finland, where alcohol interlocks have been part of the toolkit for reducing drink driving. Max Fogdell from the country's transport and communications agency, Trafficom, heads the licensing and examinations unit, and alcohol interlocks fall under his responsibility. Max, can you explain how a Finnish driver might find him or herself With an alcohol interlock device and and what benefits the device could bring?
3: Well James, the primary way of finding yourself with an alcohol interlock if is a person or a driver is caught with a DUI. This is the most common way in Finland common way to get an alcohol interlock. In addition to this, we have a uh, so-called health-based or health-related alcohol interlock, which is a voluntary program that the person can can install it in their car without having been caught uh, with the DUI. And in addition to this, we also have uh, in the private market or for private actors, uh, for school buses, it is mandatory for them to use an alcohol interlock. Then I think the most extensive use of alcohol interlocks in Finland for uh, transport companies and also taxis that vo- voluntarily uses the alcohol interlocks uh, as a proof of, of the, the quality of their service. Do the drivers have a choice? Yes, the driver always has a choice. The the alcohol uh, interlock problem for offenders is totally voluntary. So they can either choose, if they get caught uh, with a DUI, they can either choose to to get a driving ban for a certain amount of time, or then to have this so-called conditional driving ban, where the condition to the ban is that you can continue driving, but you have have to install the alcohol interlock into your car. Who pays for the device to be fitted? The customer always pays, or the driver pay, pays for the, both the fitting and the, the lease. Or if they choose to buy the interlock, they so they pay it themselves.
0: Do you have data that can show you how successful an interlock can be in reducing future offending?
3: Yeah. So in two thousand and thirteen, our agency uh, made a, conducted a survey of of persons who had participated in this conditional driving ban program or in other words had used this uh, alcohol interlock and we could see uh, according to the also uh, statistics that their uh, recidivism rate was uh, five five 5.7 percent uh, for the person who had used used alcohol interlocks so in other words 5.7 percent re-offended after the actual program but uh, if we if we studied the group who has, has uh, um, gotten a driving ban but did not opt for the alcohol interlock, the recidivism rate was 30%. So in that sense, we could see these positive effects of the alcohol interlock. Can the system be tricked? And are
0: there kind of clever ways of overcoming those instances of, of trickery?
3: Yes, there the, is definitely... At least in theory, possible to trick the device. Uh, in our latest uh, uh, alcohol interlock law, we we actually added a provision for where we outlawed in any way tampering with the the technical uh, functionalities of the device. So we had the problems of so-called on-off switches, where where people who knew who knew their way around the device uh, installed an on-off switch to to the device. Obviously that. Then, then it's not according to what, what the purpose is, is for the alcohol interlock. In addition to this, you can always have uh, perhaps your friend blow into the device because uh, in a sense the device doesn't know who blows into it. There are obviously uh, mechanisms uh, for trying to prevent this such as installing a camera so you can also see you know it takes a picture of, of who blows into the device so you can supervise it and also man, uh, most programs have the requirement that the driver has to blow into the device uh, when they are driving as well so it's it's a kind of unpredictable to have your friend always blow into the device but then uh, from a larger context it's also important to note that it's obvious that this is not a foolproof, foolproof measure against drunk driving. So so the, it's a balancing act between the the fact that you can prevent some drunk driving and, through this, but then also noticing that there are other measures because we always need to know that, uh, uh, remember that a driver can always use another car. So the measures are limited to the specific car and the specific alcohol interlocker.
0: Max Fordell, thank you very much. Let's now open this up for for a few minutes of discussion. Um, and the thing that really hits me, Ian Lewin from DTEC, is is this long, long time. Now, How can we, if if we can't improve other parts of it, surely we can make the process quicker to bring about a prosecution for somebody who has given a positive blood test.
1: The delay of six months even is is shocking because they are still driving. Uh, Cheshire gave me some of their figures lately and they had people that were caught eight times in that six months. So you've just been discussing repeat offenders and what to do with them. The simplest is get them off the road in the first place. And the way to do that, and many countries across Europe, France, Belgium, etc. have all realized that blood is not the answer. It doesn't need to be. That saliva is an absolutely adequate sample and the great thing is, and this is what the UK should be getting on with, is taking that saliva sample at the roadside, at the point of the offence. So we remove all of that delay, we remove the the dropping in the levels of the drugs, and that sample can then be analyzed. In it, For my workplace customers, I can have that analyzed in a couple of days. There is adequate capacity in the country to do the sampling, it's an easier sample to do, and the pricing is about a sixth. So you could be in looking at having the person in court the next week. Now that's what we should be doing. That, all only requires the government to allow a saliva option for confirmation. That will then get us prosecuting those 40 or 50,000 that we are losing at the moment. That is shocking. Prosecuting 12 or 13,000, losing so many more. That will create the deterrent. That will save lives, reduce injury. And that's why we need things like Project Edward to bring these things to a head. David Davis, can I just ask? You've mentioned
0: the, the combination of alcohol and drugs, and no specific law for that. So, is there a journey that we're on towards having one, or does that need to start? Well, give me an update on that.
2: Sure. Can I just comment though on, on Ian's uh, Ian's just say, I think you know we we would we would want to support Ian. I mean, in principle, we do. <laughs> But my, I'm not an expert here. I'm not an expert on drugs. I'm not an expert on the law. But you know, the consultation we did for our um, research project recently was showed up two things. F- firstly, is that the UK scientists have rejected the saliva option, and that's part. Okay, well, Ian, if I'm wrong, then i I, I um, stand corrected. But and it is partly because we have this t- Home Office type approval system, which sets a very high standard for evidence and that has advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is that the evidence, once it's taken un- under a, a piece of kit which has type approval, will almost certainly be accepted by the courts. Uh, it, won't, it will not be very difficult to, be, to challenge it. And that's good. The trouble is we set a very high technical standard, which is why 10 years on from legislation to approve roadside evidential breath testing equipment, uh, no manufacturer has yet managed to get across the line. And there is a third thing, which is that there are significant legal and um, safeguarding and policing issues regarding taking evidence out the roadside. And on the whole, I think the police are going to be very reluctant to go down that path. And it will still be, even with new equipment, it will still be a question of uh, taking uh, the offender or the suspect to the police station where they have a custody suite uh, and they can go around and go to all the range of checks and safeguards and so forth. So it's, it's scientifically complicated, it's, it's legally complicated.
0: Ian, you were shaking your head vigorously, so it's, it's just tell us about scientists and saliva.
1: David is correct on so many levels, but it's, it's a case of whether we want to move forward to actually achieve a difference and whether we're willing to look at many other countries around Europe and all the, I don't know whether they do a million yet in Australia, or what Australia is planning to do, and that's like four or five million tests a year, and we've been party to that for a couple of three years because they trust us to get involved and get it right. The issue on us using saliva, let's let's forget where we take it. I believe it could be taken at the roadside because it's then instant. If we if we start off in the police station, fine, but then do not shut off the option to go to the roadside when we realize how simple it is. The issue I think has come along with some of the other drugs that certain of the learned people writing these, that get to write these reports that get to have people listen to them. They have said that there's a number of drugs that it wouldn't work for, or it wouldn't yet work well enough. So I agree with that. However, we're screening for cannabis and cocaine. They're 85% of the drugs that we see in the UK at the roadside, driving people on cannabis, people on cocaine. Saliva is perfectly adequate for those two drugs. So if we were to go for a a saliva sample taken, and that that would solve 80, 90% 80, 90% of our problem. That would get us up into the 50,000, 60,000 people prosecuted. That creates the deterrent. Even Professor Wolf admitted in discussion that cannabis and cocaine are okay. It's, it's some of the other meds somewhere down in the tail that when it's, it's not ideal, not perfect. It's pretty good, but it's not perfect to UK legal standards.
0: Look, we, we, we're coming to the end of this now. I'm going to give you each a wish. I'm going to grant you a wish relating to some kind of improvement in road safety because of changes in drink drive legislation or technology. You can each have one wish granted. Uh, start with Ian Lewin then. What would your wish be?
1: My wish would be that we create a really, truly credible deterrent and that will come from saliva sample confirmation.
0: David Davis your turn what would your wish be?
2: Uh, I'd, I'd like the UK to introduce alcohol interlocks legislation
3: and use them widely.
0: And Max Fogdahl from Finland then.
3: Yeah, well, one wish would would perhaps be to increase the uh, cooperation between countries. I think uh, we've learned a lot from studying what other countries do and uh, what kind of programmes, specifically concerning alcohol interlocks, what kind of programmes they have. And I think that's that's the main essential when you try to develop a programme that you see where other countries have succeeded.
0: I think it all goes back to better sharing, doesn't it? Learning, good practice, sharing, like it used to be. Um, Many thanks to my guests, Today, David Davis from Pax, Ian Lewin from DTEC and Max Fogdell from Trafficom in Finland. My colleague Neil Barrett will be in the chair for episode three in a fortnight, so do please join him for that. If you found this episode of the Project Edward podcast to be of interest, please, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any comment on what you've heard today, please do join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag #ProjectEdward. You can keep up to date with our road safety activity at projectedward.org. The producer was Peter Baker. I'm James Luckhurst. Thank you for listening.